reading from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Three truths, quickly, in that single solitary verse. Number one, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It speaks of his resurrection. It speaks of his ascension. And obviously, it speaks of his exaltation. The Lord Jesus Christ, seated in the heavenly places, the realm of glory, at the right hand of his Father. He is the head of his bride, his body, his church. He is the head of a new creation, a creation inaugurated by his resurrection and a creation that we don't experience fully right now. We taste of it, but a day is coming when he will return and that new creation will be consummated. Second little truth in that verse is this, that we've been raised with Christ as Christians. Uh, There was a moment in time in which we believed, we put our faith in the Lord Jesus We acknowledged our sin, repented of our sin, cried out to the Lord Jesus to save us from our sin, and cried out on the basis of what he accomplished at the cross on our behalf, and we were made one with Christ, and now because we are one with Christ, we've been raised with him, and we are now part of that church of which he is the head. We are part of that new creation of which he is the head. Again, we don't enjoy all the blessings yet. We have all the promises, and we have a wonderful foretaste of those coming promises through the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we don't experience it all yet. But it is ours. We have a title to it because our head, the Lord Jesus, is Lord of all. Third little thing in that verse is this. Therefore, set your minds on things above. If it is true that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of his Father, If it is true that we are one with him, if it is true, therefore, that we are part of a new creation, Paul's point is simply this. We need to start living like it. We need to live like we're in union with Christ. We need to live as though we are part of a new creation. Uh, We need to live out the power of the gospel. We need to live out the lordship of Christ. And all he does, really, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3, through to verse 6 of chapter 4, is give us a picture of what that looks like. He provides us with a sweeping vision of the Christian life. He says, okay, you understand the gospel? Really. You understand what it means to be knit together, one with Christ? Really. You understand what it means to have received Christ as Lord? You understand what the Lordship of Christ is all about? Well, this has practical implications for the way in which you live. This has practical implications for every conceivable sphere of your life. And in our study of this sweeping vision of the Christian life, we have arrived, still in chapter 3, at verse 18. And we're going to tackle a section that goes all the way through. I don't like the chapter divisions. Remember, they're not inspired. And this one makes no sense to me at all. But there it is, chapter 4. It breaks the thought right in the middle. But we're going to go as far as verse 1 of chapter 4. And so let me read these verses for us now. Again, beginning in chapter 3, verse 18 of the book of Colossians. Wives. Submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, 
Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, in the sermon notes, in the bulletin, right under the sermon title, there is a quote from F.F. Bruce. Do you see it? I couldn't do any better than F.F. F. Bruce. I think he gives us a just wonderful uh, summary of Paul's main intent in this passage of Scripture. He sums up the main central message. Here it is. It is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest. That's what Paul gives us here. Seven times he uses the word Lord. Actually, six times he uses the word Lord. One time he uses the term master in reference to Christ. He's trying to convey something, isn't he? He's trying to emphasize the lordship of Christ. He applies the lordship of Christ to six different sets or groups of people. Three relationships. Husband, wife, father, children, master, slave. And so his message, again, in the words of F.F. Bruce, it is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest. Let me put it in slightly different terms. Here it is. The heartbeat of the Christian faith. It's a good way to put it. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is not found in solving theological puzzles. I'm all for doctrine. I'm all for reading great works and treatises on systematic theology. I'm all for growing in knowledge. But that is not the heartbeat of the Christian faith. The heartbeat of the Christian faith isn't found in pursuing grandiose experiences. If God gives you a season of tremendous joy, oh, embrace it for all your worth and thank him for it every day. If he gives you a mountaintop experience, thank him and praise him for it. But the heartbeat of the Christian faith is not found in pursuing grandiose experiences. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is not found in overcoming obstacles to proclaim the gospel. Yes, we should be able to cross the street to proclaim the gospel to our neighbor. But overcoming tremendous obstacles and hardships to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth is not really the heartbeat, the essence of the Christian faith. The heartbeat of the Christian faith isn't enduring unimaginable hardships. Some of us right now are enduring unimaginable hardships, tremendous hardships. God has placed you there for a season of time, and God has put you there for a purpose which perhaps only eternity will reveal. And uh, we take great comfort in that. We derive great peace from that. And yet even those hardships in and of themselves are not really the heartbeat of the Christian faith. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is not engaging in great feats of spiritual discipline. And so we do this or we do that. 
in the name of Christ. That's wonderful. I've got no problem with that. No issues with that at all. But don't mistake it for the heartbeat of the Christian faith. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is not serving in some cutting-edge ministry. Maybe the Lord will call us to do that. Maybe the Lord will place us in particular circumstances or conditions in which we are involved in some sort of cutting-edge. I like that phrase, cutting-edge ministry. Great. Embrace it. Thank Him for it. But do not confuse it with the heartbeat of the Christian faith. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is found in daily living, in particular, our closest and most familiar relationships. You, I, we are no more godly than our closest and most familiar relationships. Listen again to the words of F.F. Bruce. It is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living, day in, day out, the daily grind, that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest. That is, if you like, a great thesis statement for the Apostle Paul uh, that we could write over this text from verse 18 to verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, he does it by emphasizing the lordship of Christ, a theme which he introduced way back in verse 1. He jumps all over it again here by drawing our attention to Christ's position as Lord. He uses that phrase six times. And once he addresses him as master, and then he applies it to the household. Difficult for us to grasp. We live in a different era. But in the day in which Paul lived, what we have here is the description of a typical household. A household focused on the man, the male, as he stood in three relationships. First of all, as he stood in his relationship with his wife. Secondly, as he stood in his relationship with his children. Thirdly, as he stood in his relationship with his servants. That was the household of the day in which Paul lived. A man's closest and most familiar relationships. And Paul's point is this. The lordship of Christ must be evident here. Or to claim him as Lord is meaningless. That's Paul's point. And so what we're going to do is walk through this. I could have done a whole series on this, but I'm not going to. Because I want us to get the the main overarching point and theme as we march through these, these six groups that Paul identifies here in terms of these three relationships focusing on the man, the male in particular. And we're just going to take what Paul says at face value, and what he does as he addresses these six different groups, speaks to them pointedly, is he gives a command to each. There's that word again. We don't like it. We shrink away from it, but we can't avoid it. He gives a commandment to each. And then he gives a reason. A reason why the commandment ought to be obeyed. So we begin with wives. What is the command? Submit to your husbands. We can just move on to verse 2, right? The next verse, no problem there. What's that all about? To wives. So I'm speaking to the women here right now. It doesn't mean anybody else can tune out, but I'm speaking to the women here who are married because Paul is speaking to you. He began this epistle addressing it, the entire book, to the saints, faithful brothers at Colossae, to the whole church. But here he gets very pointed, very specific, and he starts pointing his finger at people bony little finger, and he begins with wives. And so if you're married, this is for you. Paul is speaking to you. And the command is submit to your 
husbands. Scary command. Terribly misunderstood command. Need to be clear on two things. The first is this, uh, wives, you must think in terms of attitude, not servitude. It has absolutely nothing to do with servitude. It has everything to do with a particular attitude. Later, when he addresses the children, he's going to use the word obey. Later, when he addresses servants, again, he's going to use the same word in the Greek, obey. Do not say obey here. This has nothing to do with who's boss in the home. That's how it's often been used. And a lot of men have sort of thumped their chest and latched onto this, thinking they're king of their little kingdom. That's not Paul's point here. He is describing attitude, not servitude. What attitude? It is simply a wife recognizing, not only recognizing, but embracing this fact. God has given her husband a specific role. That's all. A role he hasn't given her. God has entrusted her husband with a specific responsibility. What is it? It is to provide spiritual leadership in the home. And wives are to submit. They are to acknowledge it. They are to commit themselves to it. And they are to embrace it. Second thing we need to keep in mind as we wrestle with this command is this. We must think not only in terms of attitude, not servitude. We must also think in terms of role, not value. It has nothing to do with value. We know that simply by by looking at our God, simply by considering the doctrine of the Trinity. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence. We say co-equal, right? Co-eternal. And yet it was the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who became man. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ, while on earth, during the season of his incarnation here on earth, who subjected himself, submitted himself to the will of his Father. And yet he was always equal with his Father. So subjection has nothing to do with value. To have subjection and headship and to recognize equality in terms of value, these concepts are not antithetical. We see that in the essence of God himself. And we see that here in the context of the home, that God has entrusted again the husband with a specific responsibility of providing spiritual leadership in the context of the home. But that has nothing to do with value. It is simply a a God of order, instituting order in the home for the benefit of husband and wife, the benefit of the children, the benefit of the church. And so wives, keep those two truths in mind. Think in terms of attitude, not servitude. Think in terms of role and not value. And Paul buttresses the command with a reason, still in verse 18. As is fitting, notice what he says, in the Lord, the Lordship of Christ. Wives, hear this statement. Voluntarily submitting to that role entrusted to your husband in the home is a matter of your relationship to Christ, not your husband. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Let me repeat the obvious conclusion. Voluntarily submitting is primarily a matter of your relationship to Christ, not your husband. And so wives, here is Paul's point for you as he brings the lordship of Christ real close. 
And as he applies it to our closest and most familiar relationships, his point is simply this. Wives, you show Christ's lordship in your life by submitting to your husband. That's his point. You can take issue with that. I won't be taking any phone calls this week. You can email me because I can always just delete them. But uh, there you have it. That is what Paul is saying. But keep those two truths in mind, and I think it clears up a lot of the tension that sometimes arises surrounding this verse. It's attitude, not servitude. It has to do with a man's spiritual responsibilities in the home. And it has to do with role, not value. Enough of the wives. Verse 19. Husbands. Any here? You're all looking down. Husbands. Here we go. Verse 19. Paul's command. Love your wives. Agape. That's the word. And so it is a giving type of love. It is a selfless type of love, a sacrificial type of love. Paul hammers that home in the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 where he's a little more explicit. He gives a little more detail. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There you have it. Selflessness. This act of giving. And so out of love... Love for his bride, love for his church, love for his people. Christ exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns, didn't he? Out of love, he took, he assumed our humanity to himself with all of its weaknesses and infirmities. Out of love, he was hungry, he was tired, he was weary as he sojourned here on earth. Out of love, he was sorrowful unto death. Out of love, he expended himself for others. Out of love, he went to a bloody cross. Out of love, he bore our sin and shame. And so here we have what Paul drawing our attention to what it means to love our wives in a self-sacrificial fashion. It is by fixing on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what he did how he gave of himself, how he emptied himself on behalf of his bride, the church. Now, there is a reason, still in verse 19. Now, this is interesting. The reason is actually stated by way of a follow-up command. Do you see that? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's another command, but it is a command that actually qualifies the first one. It's actually the reason for obeying the first one. Let me sum it up as follows, explain it as follows. Husbands, if you don't love your wife like this, if you don't love your wife as Christ loves the church, sooner or later, your marriage will become an irritant. I think that's Paul's point. Love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. If we don't love our wives like this, our marriage will eventually become an irritant. Husbands, you will view your wife as the cause of your problems. You will view your wife as the cause of your frustrations. You will view your wife as the cause of your unhappiness. You will view her as the reason why you aren't who you want to be. 
You will view her as the reason why you aren't doing what you want to do. And you will become embittered against her if you do not love her as Christ loves the church. The result will be what? Harshness. And that harshness will be seen in at least one of three ways. Emotionally, husbands, you will check out. That's it. That is harsh. You will check out. Just take a time out and off you will go and you will expend yourself, your emotions, your enthusiasm, your energy in other things, detaching yourself from her. Or secondly, it might manifest itself physically. You will strike out. I cringe to even raise this, but I suppose it would be naive of me not to. That in a church this size, with our varying backgrounds and histories, that that very warning might not be pertinent to someone here this very day. That the frustration and the bitterness will pour over, will pour out physically in striking. How that man ought to repent, how that man must repent. It, 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 it is a growing I think it's, prob- it's always been a problem, but it seems to be increasing. Or maybe it's just, it's just more in our face nowadays. But if, if that is something that has been experienced in the context of your marriage, that is something, husband, you must repent of. Sister, that is something you should not put up with. Uh, that is something you should come to the elders about, definitely. That is something you should even involve the police over. That is something you should seek assistance and help for. Do not be harsh with them. And a harshness arising from a failure to love and this spirit of bitterness towards one's spouse, physically striking out, emotionally checking out, physically striking out, verbally lashing out, your words will beat her down. They will land like a boxer's combinations of jabs, hooks, crosses, and uppercuts, leaving her in the dust of your verbal barrages. That is the reason to obey the command, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul moves on now to children. Verse 20. And so we know, wives, for you to show Christ's lordship, it means what? You submit to your husbands. Husbands, we now know that for you to show Christ's lordship means you are to love your wives. Now we come to the children. Children, look at me. There's quite a few of you here. I have been spoiling our children on Wednesday nights with starbursts. I've become the starburst king here at Grace Community Church. I don't know if you know that. I go through a package almost every Wednesday night bribing their little hearts. But... um, Children, let me say a couple of things. First of all, to everyone, let me say, this is interesting. Paul actually addresses whom? Children. He expected this letter to be read where? In the gathering of the church. Meaning he expected what? Children to be in the gathering of the church. That's why we don't segregate our children. We send out the younger ones. Yes, three and under. But uh, once they get over three, we have them in here. And I know it's difficult for them to be in here, but that's one of the reasons why we do. There seems to be an expectation, Old Testament new, 
When God's people gather, that includes the children. So you children listening, I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult. Sometimes I'm up here, I don't make sense. Some of the adults don't think I make sense. So don't get too, don't get too upset about that. But you're here for a reason. You're here to observe your parents worshiping. You're here to see them feeding on God's word and to see how important it is in their lives. And you're also here because you're, you're, you're striving for something. Yes, a lot of things I say might you know, go over here, but some things do connect. But you know what? As you get older, it's all going to make sense at some point. You're going to grow and you're going to increase. And little by little, the things will start to come together. The pieces will come together like a jigsaw puzzle. It might not be next year. It might not be five years from now. It might not be ten years from now. But you keep persisting at it and it will come. The more we, are, we face God's word and the proclamation of his word, God is faithful and the Spirit will give us understanding. And so here Paul, children actually says something to you. He's addressing you. So whether you're 4 years old, 10 years old, 14 years old, 16 years old, he has a command for you. There it is in verse 20. Obey your parents in everything. Your worst nightmare come true. (laughs) Obey your parents in everything. And kids, here's what I want you to understand. Many of you do profess to believe in the Lord Jesus. Some of you have been baptized right here. Some of you recently baptized by Brian in this tank behind us. You made a public profession of your faith. And kids, you know, you've heard it enough times here to know you've heard it in the Sunday school. You're hearing it on Wednesday nights. You've heard it from here hundreds of times. The essence of the gospel. We are sinners. I stand before you as a sinner. You are a sinner. God is holy. He will judge us for our sin. But our great hope is what? That the Lord Jesus bore that punishment in our place. And God commands us to repent of our sin. God commands us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it raises a really interesting question. That kids, if you have done that, here's the question. How do you show it? What is the number one way? You're six years old. Well, I can't go off as a missionary. I get my quarter a week. That's what I used to get. I don't know what the going rate is now. But I, I, I don't really tithe that much. I'm not involved in any ministries. I'm not volunteering for anything. I don't spend great evenings in prayer. How do I show the reality of my faith? Right? How do I show that I'm really a Christian? How do I show that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life? Obey your parents. That's it. That is it. A number of reasons for that. I won't get into them all, but let me give you one, which is just going to floor you. They're smarter than you. Far smarter than you. Far more experienced than you. Far more experienced. Far wiser than you. Far more familiar with God's ways with us. Obey your parents despite our failures and our shortcomings and our own sinfulness because you know it to be true. But obey your parents. Why? Look at the reason. For this pleases the Lord. Again, that expression, Lord, Lordship of Christ. How do I, as a child, 10 years old, who, yeah, I, profess, I, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I don't get everything Pastor Stephen says, but I get enough. I'm a, I'm a believer. How do I show that? How do I live that out? By obeying your parents, for this pleases, pleases the Lord. If you disobey your parents, kids, you are disobeying God. 
If you disrespect your parents, you are disrespecting God. If you dishonor your parents, you are dishonoring God. That is the lordship of Christ brought home, brought down to the realm of a child. The fourth group, fathers. He brings us into verse 21. Here's the command. Do not provoke your children. Back up. Fathers, yes. Male, yes. Spiritual leadership in the home. But do not think exclusively of fathers. Certainly mothers have a role here. But the primary principal responsibility given towards fathers. Interesting command. Do not provoke your children. Provoke. What does that mean? Here it is. To treat them in a way that leads to deep-seated resentment that boils over in hostility. I'm going to have to repeat it. It's a little wordy. To treat them in a way that leads to deep-seated resentment that boils over in hostility. I'm going to give you seven examples of this, and I'm going to move at lightning speed. Are you ready? Seven examples. I've gleaned. These aren't, these aren't original. I have gleaned these from different sources, different preachers, preachers over the years. But here they are. How, how, what it means to provoke our children. Or how, how do we obey this, live up to this? Number one, do not indulge them. Do not indulge them. They need discipline. They need discipleship. And parameters and rules are their friends, their best friends. Do not provoke them by failing, by failing to discipline them, by failing to disciple them. Do not provoke them by indulging them. Second is this. Do not smother them. They need careful guidance and concrete parameters, but they must learn to make decisions on their own commensurate with their maturity. Their wills can be guided, but they cannot be controlled. And if we don't learn that as parents, we will provoke them. Number three, do not favor them. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. Rebekah favored Jacob over Esau. And we all know how that turned out. Do not compare your children with one another. Don't do it. Not in the slightest way. Favoritism will provoke frustration, resentment, and deep bitterness. Number four, do not push them. Expectations are good. Expectations are excellent. But they can be so pressured, our children can be so pressured to achieve that they are virtually destroyed. No sooner do they accomplish one goal than they are expected to accomplish another. Hear this sentence. Do not seek to live out your aspirations through your children. And do not seek to satisfy your pride through your children. Or you will provoke them. Number five, do not dishearten them. If they only ever hear what's wrong with them and never what is right, they will become convinced that they are incapable of doing anything right. Number six, do not manipulate them. Do not use love as a means of rewarding or punishing. They behave, I love. They misbehave, I withdraw my love. No, take special care to let your children know you love them when you discipline them. Number seven, do not abuse them. 
Discipline is not a matter of exerting superior physical strength, but of correcting in love. You can as easily overwhelm your children with words as with physical force. But one example, sarcasm will wreak havoc. Sarcasm will wreak havoc. Those are just seven examples, fathers and mothers, primarily fathers. Do not provoke your children. The reason, lest they become discouraged. Uh, John MacArthur shared this. I think it was in his commentary on Ephesians. Uh, Not his, but I found it there. A a Christian man, twilight years, reflecting on his life, penned the following. My family's all grown and the kids are all gone. If I had to do it over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our joys and at our mistakes. I would listen more, even to the smallest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. It's not selfishness. What is it? It's a man acknowledging he needs most prayers because he's got the most problems. I would do more things together with my children. I would praise and encourage them more. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds, and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Men, we need to hear this. Because as men, we get, I've used this word already, let me use it again, we get grandiose ideas of what it means to be godly what it means to be spiritually. And at times we can't see any further than the end of our nose. I should be off doing this. I should be engaged in this. I should be giving all my time and energy to this. Fine, 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 fine. Yes, service, service ministry, expending ourselves, engaging in things, it's fantastic. But do, do not lose sight of the forest for the trees. We dare not lose sight of what God has placed right there at our fingertips. And we dare not lose sight that when it comes to the Lordship of Christ, the number one way in which we demonstrate the Lordship of Christ, yes, is in loving our wives, and secondly, it is what? Not provoking our children. You want to live out union with Christ? You want to live out the new creation? You want to live out the kingdom of glory? You want to live out Christ's lordship. Just look after your family. That's all Paul is saying. All of this is seen. All of this becomes most evident, most manifest in our closest and most familiar relationships. But he's not stop- he doesn't stop there. He adds two more. But we're still thinking in terms of the Greek-Roman household. And now he enters into the realm of the relationship between master and service, servant, lost on us. We don't have that relationship anymore, masters and slaves, but the principles certainly apply to employer and employee. So he begins with slaves, employees. There's a command, verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And so most of us here are working. We have jobs. We have a certain form of employment. The command is this, obey your boss. That's it. You want to live out the lordship of Christ? Then obey your boss. 
Do what is expected of you. Do you work diligently or carelessly? We are to obey them in everything, Paul says in verse 22. Do you work faithfully or selfishly? We are not to work by way of eye service. When only someone's looking, well, then I I skip to it and I'm really involved and dedicated to my work. But when no one is looking, when there's no accountability, then off I am, Facebook here, there, everywhere, playing games, my mind a thousand miles away, wasting time, wasting energy, being paid for something I'm not doing. Do you work heartily? Or resentfully, verse 22, we are to obey with sincerity of heart. There's the lordship of Christ made manifest to all of us who are in employment context, employees. The reason comes out in the rest of the passage, summed up in this one statement. You are serving the Lord Christ. There it is again, his lordship. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. His lordship has implications for wives. It has implications for husbands. It has implications for children. It has implications for fathers. And it has implications for employees. When you do your job, the buzzer goes off at 6.30 tomorrow morning, you show up for work at 8, you're there till 4, 5, 6, or whatever it is, whatever your work context is, you must understand this. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what the work is. You're serving him. You're doing it for him. And as a manifestation of his lordship. And so we view our work as a service rendered to Christ. This shapes our motives. And this obviously shapes our attitudes. Sixth, final group of people. Brings us into the very first verse of chapter 4. So now we have our employers, masters, verse 1. What's the command? Treat your slaves. In our context, employees, treat your slaves justly and fairly. So undoubtedly, we've got a few bosses here. Different level management, whatever it might be. Low end, high end, own your own company, your own business, one employee, 10 employees, 100 employees. Here is the commandment. The Apostle Paul is addressing you. He's speaking to you. And the command is very straightforward. You are to treat your employees justly and fairly. Are your expectations reasonable and your decisions impartial? Is your attitude encouraging or discouraging? Is your tone moderate or insolent? Is your payment for services rendered equitable? Do you view your employees as people or machines? There's the lordship of Christ made evident in that relationship between employer and employee. The reason... There it is, still in verse 1. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Lordship of Christ. And bosses, you have a boss. You have a master who is watching. You have a master who is your master, your employee's master. And you need to grasp this. The Lord doesn't care that you're the boss. Your position doesn't score extra points. Your position doesn't garnish some sort of extra favor or merit. Slave, master, employee, employer, both have a master in heaven who is watching. 
And they are to fulfill and work out their respective responsibilities as unto the Lord because there is no partiality with him. And so there you have it, six groups. We've covered everybody here today, haven't we? Some of you have found yourself in multiple groups. Wives, you've now got the command and the reason. Husbands, command, reason. Children, fathers, employees, employers. And it's obvious what Paul is doing as he has introduced this great theme back in the very first verse, that Christ is our Lord. And this is the first thing, two main lessons we must get out of this text. This is the first chief lesson we must glean from it, that the Lordship of Christ, if we really serve him, if he is really Lord of our lives, it will be made, again, in the words of F.F. Bruce, most manifest where? In our closest, most personal, most intimate relationships. The second lesson is this. Godliness. We must not lose sight of this. The first, godliness is expressed in fulfilling our daily roles and responsibilities. The second chief lesson is this. Godliness is rooted in the gospel. And that's what Paul introduces back in verse 1. He reminds us of where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. How did he get there? Resurrection, ascension, exaltation. He's given himself on behalf of his bride at Calvary's cross. He's now exalted in glory. He's the head of the new creation. We've been made one with him. He has saved us. And so as Christians, we're brought into union with him. We're now one with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And all of those blessings and privileges which he purchased for us at Calvary's cross are now made ours by virtue of the Holy Spirit. We haven't entered into the full enjoyment of, the yet, of them yet. That's waiting Christ's second return. But given the fact that all of that is true, given the fact that we understand the gospel, given the fact that we understand, we quoted this earlier in our opening, beautiful text out of 1 Peter, that Christ gave himself for us at Calvary's cross that he might bring us to God, understanding that he is our God, our God forever and ever, understanding that in terms of our relationship with him, we stand upon grace and mercy alone. Paul's point is this, if you get it, you will live it. His point is, you cannot claim to understand that. You cannot claim to know just how sweet grace is. You cannot claim to have experienced the mercy of God if it is not reaching down and touching the most intimate, closest relationships in your life. He doesn't say it here. He could have said it because he means it. To fail to do that is to be a hypocrite. Getting excited about that. I guess I'm getting a little excited about that because I grew up with it. Not, not, not innumerable examples of it. Praise God, definitely not in my home. But I can think in the context of the church I grew up in, I can think of a couple of men. I can think of a couple of men who, oh, I love the Lord. I love the gospel. Actually very diligent in their proclamation of the gospel. Oh, I love the deep things of theology. Sovereignty of God, ooh, 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 and ah, ah, ah. And they were absolute tyrants in the home. Oh, that is the epitome of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. If the gospel means anything, it'll mean something in the home. If it means anything, it'll mean something in the context of the workplace. Oh, grace. And I think I included this little phrase, three words at the bottom of the sermon notes. This is beautiful. Grace sweetens. Obedience. They're not antithetical. 
This isn't legalism. This is simply the transforming power of the glorious gospel. It's simply the transforming power of the gospel in the life of an individual who truly comprehends the grace of God and what it means to be saved by Christ. And that comprehension begins to filter down to the closest relationships, the household, and is made manifest in the way in which we live. Oh, grace, it sweetens obedience. Our Father, we pray that you would impress that upon our hearts this day. May we firstly, yes, comprehend the depths of the gospel, the heights of your power and wisdom and goodness. And by your Spirit, may those truths penetrate deep within whereby they shape us. We're not claiming perfection, our Father. You know our sins better than we know them ourselves. You know our hearts. You know our weaknesses, frailties, shortcomings, and utter failures. But we hold to the cross. We cling to the Lord Jesus. And we pray that on the basis of his work and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to put into practice those things we've considered today for our collective good and for your eternal glory, we pray. Amen.